Thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning. We are continuing our series. I can't call it a new series. It's not so much new. It's more like a, we're in the middle of the series uh, called From the Heart. And uh, we're doing a series. We've asked each person speaking to share something that they wish they heard when they were in high school. And today's message is something that I wish someone had told me when I was in high school. So uh, we're going to be talking about misunderstanding God's will. And so the question that all of us wrestle with a lot, especially at your stage of life, is how do I know God's will? Now, the problem is that many of us see God's will as this magic map, and we've got to crack the code and figure out, should we go this way, should we go this way? And if we make one wrong turn, we think our life is over. That's how many of us tend to think of God's will. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was, it was 1999, before any of you guys were born, and uh, I was on a mission trip to Zimbabwe, and um, on this trip, we're partnering with a church down in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, and we met this guy who was with that church, a, a guy named Simon, who was from the country of Zimbabwe, and he, um, you know, had this amazing accent, he played the guitar, you know, and, and, uh, and you could see why girls would like him, okay, I'll just say that, and, uh, and so um, it turns out this other female leader in our, on our group or in our group, uh, the story goes, none of us knew about this till months later, but the story goes that she was doing her devotional time at some point on this trip. We were all had to spread out like you guys do at Impact Camp and do our devotionals at this one church location. And I guess this one girl who's like in her early 20s and she was single, she happened to see this guy and she had this little feeling like, I think I just saw my husband. And, uh, and so she hung on to that thought, and then um, months later, she began telling people this situation and telling people, like, what she feels like God spoke to her in this moment on a mission trip. And, uh, and so word begins to kind of spread, and people start finding out this information. And then what's crazy is that that guy plans to move over to Texas and start going to school in Dallas, and now we're all like, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. Like this thing that she thought is actually going to take place. And what's interesting about that little story is um, this girl began to kind of shape her life around this truth, this thing that she thought God had told her. To which I would say, you know, of course, God always tells you to marry the guy with the accent who plays guitar, right? God always does that. He never tells you to marry the other guy, does he? And so, this guy ends up moving over to the States, and he's now in our community and going to school in Dallas, and he has no clue this little story happened. And lots of people around our, our friend group knew about it, and were kind of like, what's going to happen? And it turned out where um, this girl's mother knows the situation, and she starts, like, having this guy over for Thanksgiving dinner, trying to, like, make it happen, you know? And it becomes this crazy deal. And so for two to three years, this girl lives her life with this idea, this backstory in mind, like, I think God told me this. Now, how can I make this thing happen? So, spoiler alert, they did not marry each other, all right? They married other people. But this became this saga where this girl was, like, hanging on to this, this, this truth for her that God spoke this to her in this moment. And, and I would just say to you that um, it's pretty common that if you meet someone attractive, who loves Jesus, you're probably going to have a thought or two, like, I wonder if I just met my spouse. You're probably going to think that once in a while. In fact, the day I met Courtney, 
I had that very thought. What if I just met my wife? And all the girls are supposed to say, oh, of course you are. But here's a spoiler. I thought that about five times before that as well. Okay? And so, <laughs> so, you know, God is right at some point, right? But, but here's the deal. This girl, she saw God's will as this secret map that she has to crack the code on. And I think this is the wrong way for us to view God's will. And so today's talk is based on a book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. And so how does the Bible talk about God's will? Well, there's a couple ways we see God's will in the Bible, and the first is what we'll call God's sovereign will. This is what God allows. So God has created this world where he allows for all kinds of things that we don't like, evil, suffering. We look at the world and we see all kinds of things that we would say, I don't like that. That's evil. That's suffering, and I can't understand why God allows it. This is all under God's sovereign will. It's what God allows. And so many see this, and they question God's goodness But I think we can take comfort in the words of Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, where it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So there is nothing that escapes God's sovereign knowledge. It's all under his sovereign control, his sovereign knowledge. This is true for everything good and everything bad. That means when someone, this is hard for us to hear, when someone gets cancer, when someone gets divorced, This is all under God's sovereign control. It means that God knew it before it happened. God knew it beforehand. So God knows our suffering before we know our suffering. But it also means that God knew about even the cross beforehand. I like what Kevin DeYoung says in his book. He says, shocking as it sounds, the most heinous act of evil and injustice ever perpetrated on the earth, the murder of the Son of God, took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. So if the evil done to Jesus was under God's sovereign will, then we can know that the evil that's done to us is also under the sovereign will of God, as hard as it is for us to understand that. So there's God's sovereign will. Then there's also God's perfect will. And this is what God desires for us. So God's sovereign will is is how things are, but his perfect will is how things should be. Now, you might ask the question, well, how can God allow sin but then hold humans responsible for their sin? How does God do that? Well, these things are going to be in tension, God's sovereign will and God's perfect will, because we also see that the the Bible affirms God's sovereignty, but it also affirms our responsibility. So, for example, God sends Babylon to go punish the nation of Judah, right? But then God punishes Babylon for acting wickedly against his people. And so you see this all over the scriptures, that there's God's sovereign control, God's sovereign will. There's also God's perfect will, what he desires. And so in Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this verse says there's going to be a lot of people. We talked about this in our How Do I Know I'm Saved series. There's going to be a lot of people who think they are Christians, but they're not Christians. They're not true believers in Christ. People who claim to know Christ, but don't do what he says. This verse talks about that. So what separates 
the person who thinks they're a Christian but really not from the person who really is a Christian, this verse talks about it. It's obedience. Do they obey him? Do they submit their life to his sovereign will and perfect will? You might say it like this. God's sovereign will allows sin, but his perfect will judges sin. So we cannot say, you know, I'm going to sin. I'm going to choose to rob this bank, and if God allows it, then it must be his will. We can't, we can't live our life like that. We have to understand there is what he allows, but there's also what he desires. What he allows is sovereign. What he wants is his perfect will. And we choose to live our life under the submission of his perfect will and how we obey him. We must affirm both. So that's the way the Bible talks about God's will, his sovereign and his perfect will. Now here's how we talk about God's will. It's God's will of direction. Where should I go to college? What should I study? What job should I take? Who should I marry? We see God's will like this corn maze we got to figure out, or a tightrope, or a target for us to hit. And if I make a wrong decision, well, then my life must, is just going to implode. Some people like to play what I would call Bible roulette. They just flip up on the scriptures. So where should I go to college? And they happen to lay it on 1 Samuel chapter 17 where it says, David killed a bear. And they're like, Baylor, I'm going to Baylor, sick them, right? Like some people approach God's will like that, like I'm just going to find these answers in the scriptures. And so the question is, why do we fret over God's will? I'm going to give you five reasons why we fret over God's will. The first is this. We really do want to please God. So it's not all bad. We really do want to please God. We want to obey him, and, and many of us are concerned we're going to make the wrong decision. We're, going to, we're afraid that we're going to disobey him in some way by some life decision that we make. So we want to please God. The second reason is that some of us are just really timid, and we're, 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 we're frightened. We're timid. I've heard it said that some Christians need encouragement to think before they act, while others need encouragement to, to act after they think. Like, you, you shouldn't do the you know, paralysis by analysis thing. Like just, you've got to move in a direction at some point. So some of us are timid. timid. And then thirdly, we want perfect fulfillment. We expect life to be smooth, fulfilling. We expect our jobs to be fulfilling and life-giving. And when it, whenever it's not, we can get disappointed. But have you ever thought about, like, your grandparents and great-grandparents like previous generations, or even if you go visit a, a third world country, an impoverished country, and you see people that have certain jobs and they're just trying to put food on the table and just trying to survive, do you think they're thinking questions like, you know, I just don't find much fulfillment in my work. Like they're trying to eat, and, and that's enough for them sometimes. But we have the luxury in this country of, of wanting and desiring perfect fulfillment from everything, and so we, we often will evaluate things based on that. Well, this job is good, it pays well, but it's just not fulfilling for me. And this is how we get caught up in these questions about God's will. And then fourthly, we have too many choices. Many of us think that the more choices we have, the happier we're going to be. This is not true. There's a book I have in my little library called The Paradox of Choice, and it talks about how why more choices 
does not lead to greater happiness and fulfillment. You guys have experienced this. Whenever you go to a restaurant, what happens when you, when you see a five-page menu? You get paralyzed by analysis. You're like, there's too many choices. I don't know what to get. And the waiter comes back, and they're like, what do you want? You're like, I don't know. Go away. And you're freaked out over just ordering food one night because you're going to make the wrong choice. It's why I love going to places like In-N-Out Burger where they have like three things on the menu. And you're like, I want a burger, I guess. That's all you have. And some fries and a shake. Simple. Right? It's simple. There's no order anxiety. You don't freak out over it because there's only a few choices. And the more choices we have, what happens is you make a choice and then you begin to question your choice. If you don't like it fully, you don't feel fulfilled by it fully, then you start to question, I should have chosen the other thing because there were like 23 other choices. I think about this whenever I go to the store just to buy something simple like deodorant. Like you look at the aisle and you're like, well, this one brand has 23 different kinds. And I'm like, I don't know what kind I need. I'm just going to have to guess. I love the one that says, like, there's, like, the regular, and then it says, like, deodorant, extra strength. And I'm like, Who, who's the guy that buys that? Like, I'm planning on having some extra bad BO this week. I'm going to get the extra strength. And there's, like, 23 kinds of deodorant, and every, our life is like this. And so not just true in small decisions, but in the big decisions as well. You have too many choices, and we think the more choices we have, the happier we're going to be. And this is actually false. More choice leads to less happiness. And then lastly, we are cowards. That's just what it is. We're cowards. Usually if something scares us, we conveniently think, well, it must not be God's will. Because if it was God's will, I wouldn't be afraid. This is not what happens in the Bible. Have you read the Bible? Almost every person who was called by God to do anything was like, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. And, and, and so what happens, what I've found in my own life is that these, these fear moments lead to faith moments. And this is how faith grows. If you're not scared, that means you don't care. If you're not scared a little bit, that means you're probably pretty prideful and self-righteous. So God can use fear to grow our faith. And for many of us, he needs to. So the question is, does God's will of direction, does it matter? And I would say, yes, it does matter. But if you and I focus only on his will of direction and ignore his sovereign and his perfect will, um, we can't ignore his sovereign and perfect will. We've got to live under that, and his will of direction will take care of itself. Kevin Young says it like this, because we have confidence in God's sovereign will, we can radically commit ourselves to his will of desire without fretting over a hidden will of direction. So we've got to submit our lives to his sovereign will and his perfect will, make that the center of our lives, and not treat his will of direction like it's some secret code that we have to crack. For many of you right now, God's will of direction is causing you great anxiety and fear. So I want you to hear these words in Matthew chapter 6. These are the words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So Jesus speaks these words into a culture where many people did not know where their next meal would come from or where they would get clothing from. And you and I may not have those concerns, but our questions about where to go to school, what to study, what career path to choose, those questions are indirectly related to the things that Jesus is talking about here in this passage because we want to provide for ourselves. So Jesus is not saying don't make plans, don't save money, don't make decisions. That would go against other scriptures that we can read, but he is saying don't be anxious. So what is that? I've heard it said this way that that anxiety, some have said that anxiety is simply living out the future before it gets here. You're trying to think of What's the worst that can happen? And trying to play it out in your mind before it gets here. And this can cause a lot of anxiety in us, in our hearts. Now, I know that many of you, if I were to ask the question, how many of you wish you knew your future? Many would be like, yes, yes, I wish I knew. Then you start thinking about, wait a second. I don't want to know about disease. I don't, know, I don't, know, I don't want to know about death or suffering. Like, I don't want to know that stuff right now. Do you? I don't. And so you start to realize, wait, there are some things, yeah, that I kind of wish I knew, but many things that I'm glad that I don't. And it becomes more, you become more okay with submitting yourself to not knowing and letting God be the one that knows these things. Because knowing can actually increase anxiety. And then I also think that if you knew the future fully for yourself, it wouldn't help you grow in faith and trust. And so in the end, what does anxiety accomplish? Nothing but compounded anxiety. And it does not add hours or days to your life. In fact, medical experts say that it takes away hours and days from your life when you live in anxiety. So look with me in Matthew 6, verses 33 to 34, where it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says, listen, today carries enough trouble of its own. So I don't have the energy to be anxious about tomorrow. So you, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so do you hear that? That's talking about God's perfect will, God's sovereign will, his perfect will. It's talking about obedience that you seek after his perfect will and his sovereign will. That's what Matthew 6 is talking about. You know, most of us fret over God's will of direction. You know, where's, where am I going to go to college? Or who should I marry? Or what job should I have? And all that becomes secondary to obedience. So you want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, here it is in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 where it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that's a big word, I know, but sanctification means, it means obedience. It means spiritual growth. It's, are you allowing God's perfect and sovereign will to sanctify you and grow you into his likeness? And so I want to apply this to a real-life situation for a few moments. We're going to look at all of this as it relates to the, the idea of marriage, which is on everyone's mind, I know. And I want to talk about some trends briefly. In 1960, by age 30, 77% of women and 65% of men 
had completed adult transitions. By that I mean leaving home, finishing school, financial independence, getting married, and having a child. You see the percentages in 1960. By the year 2000, this is what it looked like. By age 30, only 46% of women and 31% of men had completed those same transitions. And I'm sure, I'm sure now it's even way worse, 21 years later. Now, I think some of this results from high divorce rates. People have seen their parents get divorced. They've questioned the whole institution of marriage. They're like, I don't even trust it anymore. And uh, so a lot of it has to do with high divorce rates and marriage skepticism. Let's just live together and forget the whole marriage thing. But some of this is because of how our generation views God's will. Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, our search for the will of God has become an accomplice in the postponement of growing up, a convenient out for the Christian floating through life without direction or purpose. And so some Christians can over-spiritualize their indecisiveness and just continually say, well, I don't know what God's will is for me, so I'm just going to I'm just going to stay put. And this is not, I think, how God wants us to live. Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, he says, there is nothing wrong with being single. It can be a gift from the Lord and a gift to the church. If you go to my, yeah, you have this slide up there. But when there is an overabundance of Christian singles who want to be married, this is a problem. And it's a problem I put squarely at the feet of young men whose immaturity, passivity, and indecision are pushing their hormones to the limits of self-control, delaying the growing up process, and forcing countless numbers of young women to spend lots of time and money pursuing their career when they'd rather be getting married and having children. Now listen, I am not trying to beat up on the guys, but this is something that I have seen, and the seeds for it are sown in junior high and high school. We see life as a game. We never take anything seriously. And so I want to take some principles and relate it to marriage. But this applies to many decisions that you might encounter in your life. So when you think of just finding God's will, it can, it can, this might seem too simplistic, but follow me on this. The first thing you've got to do is search the scriptures. So take, for example, marriage. How do you search the, search the scriptures and you'll meet people in your life that you're thinking about dating. And if you read the scriptures just plainly, it will eliminate some of those for you, hopefully. So first off, very simply, one man, one woman. Christians should marry other believers. I'll even say this. It's not enough just to be like, yeah, he said he was a Christian. He prayed a prayer when he was four. But does his life show it? Does her life show it? Are they following after Christ? It's not wise to marry when uh, I would say someone's still an immature believer. So if they became a Christian yesterday, you might want to wait a while on that one. It's wrong to marry someone who's divorced if the divorce did not take place on biblical grounds. That's one that the church just totally ignores today, right? Most of us just ignore that one. But search the scriptures. Secondly, get wise counsel. So this is, what do your parents think? They might have some words to say about this person. What do your friends think? A lot of people shut their friends out when they're in those kinds of life-changing moments and decisions. What does your pastor think? I'm amazed at how many times 
people, even in this church, will come and just be like, hey, we're engaged. We're getting married next week. Can you do the wedding? And we're like, I just met you guys. Could, could we at least have a conversation about, like, involve your, your pastors, whoever they are at that point in your life. Hey, what do you, what do you think about? I'll never forget one girl many years ago at Impact Camp. She started dating a guy in high school. She was doing it the right way, and she just said, I want to ask you some questions. I'm dating this guy. What do you think about I'm like, well, that's a great question. Let's talk about it. And she was just a junior in high school, already wanting to involve her pastor. And I was like, no one's ever done this. This is a new territory for me. No one's ever asked me that question before. But she's thinking about it when she's in high school. And she's involving people in those decisions in her life that she respects and trusts. So get wise counsel. And then thirdly, pray. Ask God to give you pure motives. And don't get married for things like lust or money or fear of being single. I always tell people, that there is, there is a worse thing than being single, and it's being in an ungodly marriage. That's worse than being single. And many people make that trade. They will sell their soul if somebody will just love them, if somebody will just give them attention and put that ring on the finger. Many people will sell their soul for that. And it's, it's sad to watch. But you pray. You don't pray, don't just pray for the right person. You pray to be the right person. And then lastly, at some point, you've got to make a decision. So if you love someone, you're both growing believers, and the wise people in your life, they approve, well, then you get married if you're of that age. I think at times we can over-spiritualize our decisions, and we get paralyzed because of it. And sometimes you just got to ask, you know, what do I desire? I'm walking with Jesus. I have these people in my life saying this is a good thing that you're, you're doing with this person. And, and, and yeah, I desire to marry this person. But at times we like over-spiritualize our desires. You're like, we're like, well, God, God would never give me what I actually want. And we think the worst about God. So the question is, what, what desires has God placed in your heart and in your mind? What's he stirring in you? And as I look over my life, when all these things have been done, Usually a decision comes into clear focus. It no longer feels like a fork in the road. Should I choose A or B? But I get a sense to move in a certain direction. It's what happened when I came to Texas. It's what happened when I decided to marry Courtney. It's deciding to move to Temple. It's, I get this clear direction, and I feel like I start to think, you know, I can't imagine not coming to Texas. I can't imagine not marrying Courtney. I can't imagine not moving to temple. And that's, it becomes that clear most of the time. And so I want to encourage you, you submit your life to his sovereign will, his perfect will, and his will of direction will take care of itself. And so we're going to do some breakouts here. We've been